Well, uh, I am the oldest of five boys. Uh, the oldest three are only three years apart. And I remember being a kid in church, uh, and you can imagine some of the stuff that went on in the pew uh, with th these three boys. I know you look at them, and you're like, these angelic beings would never do anything, <laughs> anything wrong or disrespectful in church. But no, we were, we were typical boys, uh, three boys under 10. And so uh, whenever we were in the pew together and, and uh, mom and dad were trying to worship, the boys are always, of course, behind mom and dad, poking each other you know, shooting spitballs at each other or whatever it was that, that we were doing to each other to irritate or aggravate the other. Uh, and when we got out of hand, we would get what we would call the look, right? The, the parental look, the, the stare, uh, which meant you were in big trouble, which meant if you didn't stop what you were doing right now, you're going to be in big trouble. It was an or else a kind of moment. Uh, and so that happened, you know, pretty much every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, we learn over time, I guess, as we get older, how to, how to behave in church. But, but that's the thing. It takes time, right? And uh, when, when parents are, are trying to take their kids to church, uh, they're trying to do a couple things, right? The, the first thing they want to do is they want to indoctrinate them into what the faith looks like. And so uh, when they want you to behave in church, one reason they want you to behave is because they don't want to be embarrassed about the horrible behavior of their children, right? That's, that's one reason. So that's an earthly reason. But the godly reason is, look, we're bringing you to church. I want you to see how I worship, how we worship, how others worship, and we want you to learn how to worship. We want to teach our kids to worship properly. So the key is, you know, we are not born knowing how to worship God, right? This is something that has to be taught to us, and it's taught to us by uh, teachers who teach us and by others who lead by example. Now, uh, coming to Ezra now uh, and Nehemiah, uh, these folks had been returning from exile in Babylon, right? A pagan land. Most of these people hadn't read Hebrew. They didn't know their Hebrew Bibles. They didn't know how to properly worship. And so they needed spiritual leaders who were going to teach them how to properly worship the Lord. So as we think back over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've covered so far, in Ezra chapter 1 through 6, this is about 538 BC when Zerubbabel leads these first wave of exiles back from Babylon. And so that's covered in chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. He, Ezra is not yet on the scene, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua are teaching these folks how to properly worship God. Then 60, 70 years later, Ezra comes himself. And in Ezra chapter 7 to 10, uh, he teaches this second wave of exiles who are returning from Babylon how to properly worship the Lord. And in Nehemiah, the whole book of Nehemiah, what we're learning is that Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites uh, and Ezra even taught them how to properly worship the Lord. So since we're like on the verge of wrapping up this Ezra and Nehemiah study, and since I was out a week last week, I just want to remember where we are in the book of Nehemiah. Remember, chapters 1 through 6 are about the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, but he lives in Persia. And so Nehemiah gets a report from his brother. He hears the walls are in just terrible condition, and so he prays about what he can do about the condition of the wall. And chapter 2, uh, since he's cupbearer to the king, he's got access to King Artaxerxes, so he can ask for permission to go back and to... Um, to uh, help rebuild the wall. And so he does that. He gets permission to go back. But as soon as he gets there, chapters 3 and 4, they face this external opposition from these, these, uh, the, these the three amigos, I call them, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who do everything in their power to try and stop the construction of the wall. Uh, and so they had that external conflict. 
Then in chapter 5, internal conflict, as you have these unscrupulous people who are lending money at exorbitant rates of interest, uh, and then when the people couldn't pay, they would foreclose on their land and their crops, and they would even take their children as uh, slaves uh, to, to pay as collateral for the debt that they couldn't pay back. So uh, that takes us up to chapter 6. Now, uh, they've got internal conflict, external conflict, and now uh, they make it personal, right? They want to take a hit on Nehemiah himself, and they use even the priests and the prophets to participate in this plot to assassinate Nehemiah. So all of this stuff is going on, all of this external satanic opposition to Nehemiah and God's plan to get this wall built, but yet somehow, by God's miraculous hand, they get the wall built in only 52 days, even with all that going on. So now with the wall done, uh, chapters 7 through 13 are about recommitting uh, to proper worship. And so uh, that's what we see throughout the rest of the book. So Ezra and Nehemiah teach the people. So chapter 7 is a long census talking about the returning exiles who came back from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, once they're reassembled, Ezra reads the law to them. Now, these folks, most of them, had never had the law read to them. They're exiles in Babylon. They didn't even know Hebrew anymore because generations had passed. And so uh, Ezra read the law to them. Some of them were hearing it for the first time. Uh, and they're learning what God's requirements are for worship. And so as Ezra read the law... It happened to be the month of Tishri, which is the month where they have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So they worshipped and they observed those feasts according to the way God commanded them. And then two days after they did that, we come to chapters 9 and 10, and this is where uh, they gather again, two days after the Feast of Tabernacles, and they come to confess their sins in chapter 9, to, to confess the glory of God's greatness in chapter 9, and then to recommit themselves to proper worship in chapter 10. And so they agreed to follow the law, not give their daughters in marriage to foreign people, not to conduct business on the Sabbath with the other pagans around the area, and fulfilling their duties to uphold the temple by tithes and offerings and uh, contributing to the general upkeep of the temple. So now that brings us up to speed. Uh, here we are now at the end of chapter 10, and so they still haven't occupied the city, first thing, and they still hadn't dedicated the wall. So this is the uh, object of what we're going to be talking about today. So we have chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12, which is just a census, basically, of the people who lived outside the city, who were working on the walls, who now want to move inside the city or who will move inside the city. That takes us to the middle of chapter 12. And then beginning in the middle of chapter 12, we will talk about how uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests and Levites taught them how to worship the law properly. I'm sure you'll be delighted to know that we're not going to read every single name and verse and place in chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12, uh, but this is a census. It's a census of those who are going to live inside the city uh, after they finished rebuilding the walls. So uh, beginning in chapter 11, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So we've talked about this before, like life outside of the city before the walls were built 
would be hard, right? Because we've seen uh, that they had enemies and they were formidable enemies who would do anything in their power to harm them uh, emotionally, psychologically, even physically, if they had to, to stop the wall. Now, these people who were building the wall lived outside the wall. Uh, the wall was kind of in their backyards. They're building up this wall, but they still live outside the wall. And now, with the walls complete, it would be safe to move inside the city. Uh, they only have to decide now who are the people who are going to live inside the city. How would they decide these things? So they cast lots, is what it says. Now, casting lots is an interesting thing. We see it throughout the New Testament. It's these it's, uh, rocks, uh, dice-like things, uh, where they ask the will of the Lord, and then they throw dice, uh, essentially trying to determine God's will. Now, that might seem like a very uh, inaccurate and perhaps random way to determine God's will, but God never condemns it in the Old Testament, and in fact, it's done several times to determine what God's will is. Now, we would not... Uh, authorize or sanction going to the casino or something to determine God's will and tossing your dice down the craps table. We wouldn't, we wouldn't recommend that uh, because we're Christians, right? We have the Holy Spirit. Now we rely on the Holy Spirit to help us determine God's will. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So when we want to know God's will, we get down on our knees and we, we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us and guide us and lead us. Uh, but back then, it was the casting of lots. And so it's interesting, when you read those first two verses, we can't really tell, did the people want to live in the city or did they not want to live in the city? Uh, you know, you'd think it'd be easy to get 10% of the people to raise their hand and say, yes, I'd love to live in the city. Uh, if that's tr true, then why would you have to cast lots to find 10% of the people to live in the city? Or maybe it was like a lottery system where, you know, the 10% of the people who won the lottery got to live in the city. Uh, so we don't really know. Uh, it was, it's called the Holy City. It was a privilege to live there. We can imagine that real estate inside the walls would be more expensive than outside the walls, just like in any city. Uh, so maybe they did want to live there, and so they volunteered cheerfully to go into the city. So that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that uh, it's hard to, to move, to start from scratch, to build a new home inside the city. And maybe they would have preferred to stay in the suburbs outside the city. Uh, we lived in northern New Jersey, and it was very nice to have New York City just 10 miles away. But it was also really nice to come back outside the city and not have to live among all that chaos that goes on in the city. So there's something to be said for that, too. Uh, so we don't know. Did they want to move in? Did they not want to move in? If they didn't want to move in, this volunteering uh, is almost like how you volunteer when you get drafted into the army, right? Uh, not really volunteering at all. Your number gets called and into the city you go. But the good thing about this is that those who were chosen uh, by lot, they went voluntarily, uh, almost cheerfully into the city to live. So I want to make a point of application here. And the point of application is, is to be happy with God's will for your life. You know, God sometimes gives us circumstances. He, he, he confronts us with things that we might nece not necessarily choose, right? Uh, there are lots of things that happen to us that we say, God, I, I wish you hadn't done that. You know, I wish you had done this some other way. I, I wish you didn't present me with this particular circumstance. But Sometimes, uh, well, all times, I mean, God has a reason for what he does. And sometimes God needs to shake us up a little bit. Sometimes he needs to upset our comfort zone. Sometimes we're too comfortable. We're too satisfied. 
Uh, and God has a plan that will require us to grow and change. But to do that, he's got to shake us up a little bit. He's got to stir us up because we are comfortable. We, we, we can get comfortable. And when we do, uh, you know, that's when we tend to fall into uh, maybe some bad habits. Maybe we get lax about worshiping God. Uh, you know, God's not through with any of us. He, he's got a plan for us. And, and uh, it may be that he wants to shake us up. And, and if he does, uh, we shouldn't resist it. We should accept God's will. Realize that God's plan is better than our plan. And if he does something to make us uncomfortable, well, it's because he's got something he wants to do with us or something he wants to do through us. And he needs us to, to get up and do something new, except that he's got something that he wants to do through us. So we cooperate with him. We have a good attitude and we ask what God wants to accomplish through us. Uh, and then we, we conform with his will. So just a quick point of application there. Now, Starting in chapter 11, verse 3, all the way through 1226, uh, this is a, a list, a categorization of all the people who moved into Jerusalem. And just to mention them by category, the author mentions the children of Judah, the sons of Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, the others. So these are all the people who moved back into the city among the 10%. And then in 25 to 36, uh, it's, it's the people who are living now in the villages and the towns outside of the city walls. So we know who's living in the city. We know who's living outside the city in verses 25 through 36. And then as we come to chapter 12, Chapter 12 identifies the names of the priests and Levites and all the places where they settled. And this dates back 100 years to the time of Zerubbabel. So verses 1 through 9 mention the priests and Levites who came back with Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. We're up to about, during Nehemiah's time, we're about 440 B.C. now. So about 100 years has passed. Uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12 list the high priests from the time of Zerubbabel. Verses 12 to 21, the high priests... Uh, from Zerubbabel all the way through the time of Nehemiah, and then 12 to 26 named the Levites through many generations. Now, we are familiar with censuses, right, in the Old Testament. We see them often. We even see a couple in the New Testament. And so why? Why do we have these long and seemingly boring lists of names and people that don't mean anything to us? Well, I think the reason why is because it's important to talk about continuity and to talk about heritage, how we pass down from generation to generation. Those are very important things. And so for the priests and Levites, this was particularly important because uh, the benefits of being a priest that you got and, and the ability to serve uh, came through her heritage. If you didn't have heritage, if you couldn't prove your heritage, you wouldn't be able uh, to serve. So you might remember back in Ezra, do you remember back in that passage when they were first coming back to uh, Israel, there was a group of priests who could not establish their genealogy and their heritage. And they were not allowed to participate in worship, in service. They were not allowed to, to enter into the synagogue and have fellowship with the people because their lineage was important. And so uh, if you can't intermarry, participate in community life, that's a big deal. And that's why it's important for these genealogies to establish people's right to the land and the right to, to what uh, the priesthood brought them. So an application point from this long section is this. It's important to establish a legacy of faith. We need to teach our children and we need to teach our grandchildren about the faith. That's our responsibility. And so 
I consider that one of my greatest responsibilities as a parent, to teach my own kids uh, about the faith, and then uh, if we're blessed to have grandchildren at some point, to teach those ch grandchildren as well. And I know you feel the, the same way. Uh, we want to be a, a very strong Christian influence in the lives of our kids and our grandkids. Now, we cannot guarantee the salvation of our kids or our grandkids, right? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we can do is we can teach and lead and we can give them every possible advantage uh, so that they understand what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and uh, so that they can receive him too. So uh, we, we lead and we teach by example. And, and our family's goal is that from this generation on, there is not one generic uh, who will live ever, who is not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And if that's going to be the case, every one of us, this generation, the next, and the next, has to take this legacy of faith seriously. Uh, we have to share our faith with the future generations. So it's important to establish a legacy of faith. All right, now we come to the second half of chapter 12, and this is where we learn about proper worship of the Lord. So let's read chapter 12, verses 27 to 30. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so they could celebrate the dedication with joy, with songs of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the territory around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netaphathites, from Geth Gilgal, and from the fields in Geba and Asmaveth, because the singers... And the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people and the gates and the walls. So think about how much goes into the preparation for a wedding, right? Uh, the bride and the groom don't just show up on the appointed day and get married, right? Unless, you know, they probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> if they have, there's other issues. But if they haven't, hopefully they've planned and prepared and, and, uh, and it's, been, it's the months of planning that make the day special, right? And so the venue, the flowers, the music, the photographer, the dresses, the tuxedos, the limousines, the wedding cakes, the rings, the, the table ornaments, you know, all that stuff has to be thought and has to be planned out. There's so much to do. And so that's what this dedication service was like uh, that Nehemiah put together. It was not thrown together willy-nilly because proper worship involves preparation. Uh, I know that, that the worship team, whether it's Cherry or whoever's on board here on a Sunday morning, they're up way before the dawn, right? Way before the sun, preparing to properly worship the Lord. Uh, so you can't just wing it with proper worship. So what did they do here? The, the leaders, they found the Levites. These are the people who lead the people in worship. And so they asked them to come inside the city, lead the people in worship. And then they recruited all the singers who also lived in the city and from the surrounding villages where they settled. And so the priests and Levites call all these people in. They, they get the people in. Then they purify themselves uh, with ritual bathing and ceremonial cleansing and animal sacrifices. And after they were purified, then they went about purifying the people and the gates and the wall, which also would happen with the sprinkling of blood. So we see all this preparation involved in this fantastic day of dedicating the wall. Now, from our perspective, uh, since we don't ritually bathe or offer animal sacrifices anymore, how can we apply this to the way we worship here on a Sunday morning at Grace Redeemer? Well, preparation and purification are, are symbolic, they're emblematic of our attitude as we come before the Lord. So how would we 
prepare properly for, for worship service uh, on a Sunday morning or any morning that we want to worship the Lord. Uh, on a Sunday morning, it might include, for example, getting up an hour earlier than perhaps you're used to getting up. And, and in that hour, you pray that the Lord will help you uh, put aside the cares of the world for the week and, and uh, perhaps just give you an, an extra ear, an extra attentive ear uh, to receive his word. Uh, we can, during that prayer time, ask God how we can serve the church, how we can serve others in the church, how we can identify the needs of other people, be attentive to them, and, and figure out what we can do to fulfill the needs of somebody uh, who is hurting. Uh, maybe we can ask God to, to, to prepare our hearts just to receive the word, that, that we would be open to receiving something new from the Lord today, that we would not say to ourselves, well, I know all this stuff already, I really don't need this, but the guy next to me, he really needs it. <laughs> maybe we ought to have an, an attitude more of me, I need to hear this. Or can we pray for attitudes like that? Maybe we read the passage in advance. Uh, I kind of preach right through, so you know what's coming next, right? So you read that passage in advance and, and meditate on that, pray on that, see what the Lord has for you from that, not just what I say, but what the Lord says to you in your prayer time. So these are some things that we can do to prepare ourselves, to purify ourselves for worship on Sunday morning. Uh, I'm guilty as this as anybody, rushing around on Sunday morning, you know, where's my coat, Where, where's my sermon, where's my notes, where's my stuff, where's my keys. When we're rushing around like that, when we're, not, when we're not really finely attuned to what the Lord wants for us and we haven't properly prepared, we might miss uh, the best that the Lord has for us. So proper worship begins with preparation and purification. Next, proper worship includes participation in the worship service. This is verses 31 through 43. <clears throat> now, despite all this opposition that we've learned about that the Israelites faced in putting up this wall, uh, they managed to complete this incredible feat in just 52 days. The wall was so big, so wide, so strong that the people could actually walk on it. So uh, this is what a section of the wall looks like now. When we were in Israel last, we walked on a section of wall just like this. This is not what the wall looked like in Nehemiah's day. It's a different wall. Uh, but it was big enough, strong enough that you can walk on. Think about, we just had the Olympics in China, right? And they're always showing the Great Wall of China. It was a big wall. You could walk across it. And, and there were uh, lots of people on this wall, as we'll see as we go through these verses. Uh, so in verses 31 to 37, uh, Nehemiah assembled two separate choirs down there on the bottom of the picture. It seems as, like that's where they started. So Nehemiah assembles these two separate choirs, and he sends them off in opposite directions. Uh, Ezra led the first choir that probably started out down there near the dung gate, and they proceeded counterclockwise, which is to the right uh, for you clockwise challenge people, and they moved toward the dung gate, uh, then around to the fountain gate, and continued on their way, uh, moving up toward the water gate uh, on the east side of the city. And then at the same time, there's another choir that Nehemiah assembles. It's around the Dung Gate. And then this one goes in the other direction, past the Valley Gate, the Old Gate, the Fish Gate, uh, moving in a clockwise direction. And then they stop at the place called the Inspection Gate, also known as the Gate of the Guard. Uh, so that takes us up to verse 40. Now in verse 40, both choirs take their position in the house of God. And so between them, they marched on the wall the length of the entire city, uh, meeting at the other end. And, and as they did that, they marched the whole length, they sang, they offered sacrifices, they played their instruments, they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And verse 43, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Now just think 
about what an incredible moment of triumph this is for Nehemiah, right? With all his enemies heckling him, mocking him, doing everything they can to stop his construction of the wall. Uh, they mocked and said, you'd never get this wall built. And Tobiah said, mocking him, you know, if even a fox walked on this wall, the whole wall would crumble down. Remember that from back uh, earlier in the book. And so now there are these two great choirs marching on the wall, uh, almost like thumbing their noses at their enemies, saying, look what we did despite you with God's help. And they're praising God for the victory. So these people, they didn't just attend a worship service, right? They didn't just come to church, right? They participated. They were actively involved, praising the Lord with joy and thanksgiving. Now, contrast that with the age in which we live, right? We live in an age of consumerism. Uh, and everybody wants to know before they commit to anything, well, what's in it for me? Uh, what am I going to get out of it, right? And that's especially true even these days uh, with church because there's a church on every corner in Dallas, right? And we, if we don't like this church, we'll just go to the church down the block. So people want to know what kind of programs they have for our kids and what kind of worship music they sing and, and how long the church service is and you know, how cool the pastor is. And uh, it's pretty cool, just, just it's pretty, pretty cool pastor. <laughs> but... All kinds of things they ask, right? They ask millions of questions to see if this church is right for them. And I just wonder if that's the right attitude, right? We need to think not about what we can get from church so much as what we can give to church using the gifts that God has given to us. Uh, John F. Kennedy fam famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? And I think that we could very profitably substitute church for country and ask the same question or have the same attitude. We need to think like contributors to the church rather than consumers of the church. So when we're willing to give of ourselves from our gifts and our talents, we're worshiping God. But if we're only here to take from the church, well, then we're just consuming. Because church isn't a box on a to-do list that we check off and say, all right, obligation complete, right? Uh, church is a place that we go to gather together in community because we want to be here using whatever gifts we have to encourage the body and build up the body. Well, that's the kind of worship service they had here in this dedication day. The people all participated in the service. They, they used their gifts. They, they marched. They sang. They played their instruments all for the glory of God with their whole hearts. Now, it's interesting because now here we have pure, unadulterated joy in what had happened, what God had done. Back in Ezra chapter 3, verse 13, or 11 through 13, remember when they had laid the foundation for the temple? Uh, there were people there who had seen the original temple, and they were sad about this new foundation because they knew that the glory of this new temple wasn't going to be as great as the, as the old temple. But then there were people who had never seen the old temple, and they were just so thrilled about what they had accomplished, so they were full of joy. So these verses say, And the people all shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that many could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from far away. 
So back then there was this, this mixture of weeping and joy, and you couldn't tell which was which. The noise was loud, but are they happy or are they sad? Well, they were both. But now here in verse 43, it was pure worship. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. So uh, their enemies uh, had no question now. Uh, this is pure joy. There's no weeping. There's no sadness. They are happy. They've defeated their enemies, and God has worked among them through their hands to rebuild this wall. And so it's pure worship. And now that they have decided uh, the wall is built, they've decided who's going to live in the wall, they've dedicated the wall to the Lord. Now they're going to make plans to follow biblical patterns of worship now as they go forward. So let's talk about that, verses 44 to 47. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the supplies, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them in from the fields to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served, for they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in the ancient times there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and songs of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required. And they set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. So this dedication day was a very special day. It was an enormous day in the, the history of Israel. And, and Nehemiah planned for it, but he didn't just stop with planning for that day. He planned for ongoing worship, for continuing worship, uh, as, uh, as they were going to, to worship not just this day, but every day. And he did it by following biblical patterns. So he reestablished uh, the contributions uh, to the Levites as the law required. And he also charged them with following the responsibilities that David had enacted some 500 years earlier. So music was one, right? Music was vital to the congregation. David was always playing an instrument or singing. Uh, it was very vital back in those days. And uh, so we see music being reestablished. Uh, verse 47 kind of gives us a, a summary of what else they did to, uh, to reestablish the old worship patterns. We see three things here. They gave portions, do the singers, and the gatekeepers as, as each day required. So they were supposed to pay these guys to, to, to keep them afloat as they served in uh, the temple. They also set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, so the same for the Levites. And then the Levites took from theirs and set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. Those were the priests. So everybody's being taken care of, the singers, the Levites, and the sons of Aaron. And we're going to see that that's important next week. Um, it is important this week, but they're, they're, going, to, they're going to lose their way uh, doing this next week when we come to that. Um, but Nehemiah at least got off to a good start here. Uh, this is what he reestablished. These are the things that they were doing throughout the Old Testament. So we're going to talking 500 years back to David, 1,000 years back to Moses and Aaron. And so we learn from this that God has a way that he wants to be worshipped. Uh, remember back in Exodus when Aaron's two sons were burned up for offering what was called strange fire before the Lord, right? Uh, 
sometimes worship, like even if it's well-intentioned, can be offensive to the Lord. So we have to know how God wants to be worshiped, and that's why we need to look at biblical patterns of how we're supposed to worship. So at Grace Redeemer, we do at least four things that have always been done since the New Testament church began. And those things are we sing songs of praise to the Lord, right? Every Sunday we do that. We enjoy a time of worship through the preaching of God's word. We pray and we share the Lord's Supper together. These things that, these are things that have always been done in all Orthodox New Testament churches now for 2,000 years. And so we follow uh, the biblical patterns of worship that God prescribed because that kind of worship is what's pleasing to God. Now, the danger, of course, in following any kind of pattern or prescription for worship is that it becomes rote or ritual. And by that, I mean it becomes meaningless because we do the same thing over and over again. And so we're just going through the same motions every week. Now, I hope that never happens in our worship service here. But the only way to guard against that is the things that I talked about earlier. Proper preparation, purification, and participation in the worship service will guard us against uh, this ever-becoming rote. So I hope that we uh, will participate with gusto in the worship service and that this worship service never becomes rote for any of us. So we, we come to the Lord on a Sunday morning. We bring our best worship to him every Sunday morning. So if you want to raise your hands, go ahead, raise your hands. If you want to get down on your knees, get down on your knees. You want to clap, you want to sing, you want to dance in the aisle, just worship the Lord. If you're doing it with your whole heart, Chuck, go ahead. You want to dance? Go dance. <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> We'll have a good time. Uh, so yeah, but if you're worshiping the Lord properly, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. We can't go wrong if we're following God's patterns for worship. So it's basically reminding me of what we learn in Hebrews 13 about loving God and loving others. This is what it says. Through him then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips praising his name. So love God. Verse 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Love others, right? Love God, love others. That's our, our slogan here at, at uh, GRCC. We love God, we love others. And Jesus said essentially the same thing in Matthew chapter 22 when a lawyer asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So that's love God. And then second is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we can't go wrong if we're following this biblical pattern. Love God with proper, authentic worship. God knows our hearts. He knows what's for him, and he knows what's for show, right? God knows the difference between those two things. So love God with share, by sharing with others and meeting their needs where you can. All right, let's talk about some applications. Uh, the first thing I would say is that true worship is consistent. Uh, true worship is not just checking uh, a box uh, on your to-do list every, uh, every morning, every Sunday morning, or once a month, or twice a year, or whatever it is. If it's an obligation to be fulfilled, it's really not proper worship, right? Uh, it's just an obligation that we're, we're fulfilling. So we come to church because we want to be in the house of the Lord. We want to worship God. We want to be with God's people. We want to edify each other. We want to encourage each other. We want to be together. Uh, we're a minority, you know, and it's nice when a minority like this can be together, all of the same mind, loving God and loving each other. Uh, so we can't be an involved part of community, fulfilling uh, our role in the church, uh, using our spiritual gifts that God has given us if we're only here sporadically. So true worship of God is consistent preparation, purification, and participation in the worship service. 
So true worship is consistent. True worship is also joyful. It's not a burden or an imposition for us uh, to be here on a Sunday morning. Worship overflows out of a heart that's full of gladness and joy and gratitude for all that God has done for us, especially in giving us his son, Jesus. Uh, Jesus willingly sacrificed himself, as the book of Hebrews puts it, for the joy set before him. While that joy was the glory of God, him returning to his rightful place, and the purchase of of the souls of of you and of me uh, because of our sin. Uh, When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus paid the full penalty that you and I owe for the sin that we have committed that we could never repay. It's the price that God required for the forgiveness of sins. And all we need to do is believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when we believe that, God fills us with the Holy Spirit, fills us to overflowing, fills our hearts with joy. And so we serve him not because we have to, but because we want to. And then we ask God where he wants to use us, and then we willingly go. So true worship is consistent, joyful, and finally, it's biblical. We're not here to put on a show like you see in some churches nowadays, right? Uh, Shows bring glory to the performers, but true worship brings glory to God. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring glory to God. And we know how to do it because God tells us how he wants to be worshiped. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John 4, he said, you shall worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, not in hypocrisy and, you know, lots of smoke and and, and mirrors and stuff like that. Spirit and truth, that means authentic worship, uh, knowing who the true God is, knowing who we are in relation to the true God and offering proper worship to himself, to him. And so that requires preparation, purification, participation, and worshiping God with all our heart. We bring our best to the Lord, and we know the difference between true worship and false worship, and God does too. To sum it up, Paul said in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And with such worship, God is pleased. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these two chapters. They might be easy to skim over in our Bibles because there's so many names and places and they're not all that relevant to us, Lord, but we just pray that uh, you'd help us see the relevance of this, Lord, in the way that you wish to be worshipped, Lord, that we would just bring a heart of praise to you every time we come before you, that we would worship you with full hearts, full of love and gratitude, especially for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, I pray that you would apply this message to our lives, that we would remember how you want to be worshipped and that we would worship you your way, Lord, uh, and that we would be grateful and happy to do it, Lord. And we just thank you for all you've done for us. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.